Hello and welcome back to another edition of Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. We're available on the Financial Mail's digital platforms and on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms as well. So there's no excuse not to listen, perhaps especially today, because we're beginning in South Africa to get to the nub of our post-apartheid politics. Barring some kind of miracle, some would call it a catastrophe, the ruling ANC seems unlikely to be able to get more than 50% of the vote nationally and probably more than in just one province come the 2024 elections, meaning that coalition government in South Africa takes another big step forward, a really big one. But can coalitions really work and can they actually get things done? We see in the SA now with the single party in power how little gets done. Why would a group of parties who by definition shouldn't disagree with each other do any better? To talk about coalitions, I have a seasoned campaigner with me today. Athol Trollope, former mayor of Nelson Mandela Bay, former federal chairman of the Democratic Alliance. He's now provincial chairman in the Eastern Cape of Action SA, the party formed by entrepreneur and former Johannesburg mayor Herman Mishaba. Athel, thanks so much for your time today. We are going to try and stick to the politics of coalitions today rather than politics generally. But I know you were hopeful that action, I say, could have made some progress in Gabecha last week at a by-election. I think it was Ward 43, but it was not meant to be, and I'm sorry about that. Um, but perhaps a good place to start, because had you taken the ward, you would have changed the politics and management of the city. That's correct. Um, I, I just want to concur with you. I, I do believe that 2024 will herald in a new epoch of post-apartheid politics with the ANC being brought below 50%. And the big challenge is to get the ANC closer to 40% than 50%. Uh, because if they go just below 50%, they might, you know, cobble together a coalition with the EFF. And I think that would be disastrous for South Africa. But uh, I, I do believe we're entering a new era of politics uh, without the ANC. And if I can quote Antonio Gramsci, who said the old must die before the new can be born. And I look forward to the new being born in South Africa. To go back to your question about Ward 43, look, I mean, it was always uh, a huge mountain to climb. Uh, a ward in Nelson Mandela Bay in a place called Guanabuche, which is now uh, a, a suburb of a place called Garicha that used to be called Utenag. Uh, things change, uh, and so does politics. Yeah, we, we we were a little disappointed. I was expecting that we could do really, really well there. Um, the ANC had covered themselves in um, much disgrace over a number of years in that ward, but it wasn't to be. Uh, the ANC were reduced from 74% to 69%. Action SA in their first effort outside of Gauteng and KZN, um, we, we got 8%. Um, well, you know, 8% in an ANC stronghold, if we extrapolate that across all ANC stronghold wards in the country, we will most definitely be the core of an alternative government in 2024. So I think change is on the horizon, and I'd be very happy to talk with you about my experience in coalitions and uh, what would have happened if, uh, you know, we had won in Kwanabuche. If we'd won in Kwanabuche, I believe that it would have given uh, the the other parties that are not ANC aligned, an opportunity to put together a majority coalition in Nelson Mandela Bay, which would make things easier to govern, but not easy. I mean, my experience in Nelson Mandela Bay is that coalitions are not easy. And um, we anticipated that when I was still in my former party, I was sent to Germany to go and study 
how they put coalitions together and how they manage them. And they're very, very difficult to manage. I mean, Angela Merkel managed the coalition government for most of her 10 years, Chancellor of Germany. So, you know, the Germans have got uh, a lot more experience in coalitions than we have. And, you know, you only get experience by doing things. So I think that we've learned a lot in South Africa over the last five years with regards to coalitions and how to put them together. But the greatest um, frailty about coalitions, before I hand over to you to ask a specific question, the greatest frailty of coalitions is that if you're in a multiple party coalition, more than two or three parties, and sometimes even six, seven or eight parties, uh, what you end up having is transactional politics where the smallest parties make the greatest demands and they deserve them the least, but you have to make concessions for them to get them to go along with you. And once transactional politics is the foundation of your coalition, you can be sure that that coalition will break down before long because somebody will hang another ca carrot in front of their noses and they'll go after that one. So transactional politics in South Africa really is the Achilles heel of coalitions at the moment. But it's but the coalitions nonetheless are inevitable. Um, just perhaps for, for listeners, describe your experience uh, in PE, Nelson Mandela Bay, Tabecha. You, you uh, were still in the DA at the time. You were the mayor of the city of the metro, and your deputy was from the United Democratic Movement, and you fell out. Yeah, Peter, um, I'll be very happy to share that experience. Uh, first of all, you'll recall that in that 2016 election, there was the greatest um, political swing uh, in post-South African um, local government politics. Um, there was a 17 percentage point swing in the city where the DA went from 40% to 47% and the ANC from 51% to 41%. Um, so we, we were in, uh, in the, you know, in the, in the driver's seat of that coalition. We, we didn't have enough. Uh, we only got 47%. So we weren't able to have an outright majority. So we put it together a coalition with the United Democratic Movement that had two seats and ACDP and COPE. So essentially, there were our 57 seats, 47%, 57 seats, two from the UDM, two from uh, the ACDP and COPE respectively, and that gave us a 61 uh, seat, which was a one-seat majority. I mean, it was very, very tenuous, but we had a majority coalition nonetheless, which was different to Twane and Johannesburg. Yeah. And uh, Peter, you know, I campaigned when I was uh, running to be mayor. I campaigned on a couple of things. But the first, very first promise I made was that I would stop corruption. I didn't say that I would try and curtail it or, you know, bring it under control. I made a commitment to the people of Nelson Mandela Bay that if I was elected mayor, I would stop corruption. And uh, it wasn't even two months into our coalition uh, that it became apparent to me that Mr. Mongameli Bobani from the UDM was busy with corrupt and nefarious activities. Uh, and he had stopped voting for us. Uh, you know, within two months, he wasn't voting with us. And having a coalition partner that doesn't vote with you is a bit like having a spouse that doesn't sleep at home. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I brought this to the attention of the UDM uh, leadership, Bantu Olamisa and the DA leader, Musi Maimane. And we had five formal meetings in Cape Town. We were all there. I wrote 21 letters to uh, Bantu Olomisa, a uh, chapter and verse of what was going on in Mongameli's uh, department, which was uh, public health. And, uh, you know, 
Unfortunately, my experience was that Bantu Hulamisa had made a name for himself as an anti-corruption crusader. But when it came to dealing with corruption in his own ranks, he just point blankly refused to deal with it. And uh, I had no option, really, after all those efforts and months and months of negotiations. I then took the step to fire Mungameli Bobani as the mayoral committee member for public health. That was the only authority I had. I could not remove him as the deputy mayor because he'd been elected by council. And at the end of the day, it led to me uh, being asked as the mayor because Bobani and his um, colleague voted against us. But the the real tragedy was that one of the DA councillors also um, didn't vote in that council election. So I was removed as mayor. And I have no regrets. I have a great regret that I didn't finish my term of office um, because I think Nelson Mandela Bay would look completely different to what it does today. You know, we'd gone from being the second worst metro municipality to the second best in one year. There was quite a transformation. But, you know, I've learned in my life that, um, you know, principle is fundamental. And once you've lost or compromised your principles, you lose everything else. And I couldn't sit and watch my deputy mayor being corrupt and being involved in corruption. And, you know, history has proven that he was because even his estate has now been frozen by the special investigative unit. And uh, mm. he's been implicated in some serious fraud and corruption in Nelson Mandela Bay, and those court cases are going ahead. So, in terms of in terms of principle, I understand. I, I get I, I get the point. So you draw a line on, in, in, let's say, in, in corruption. Where, what other lines is it reasonable to to draw? For instance, the DA would say, "Now I think we would have nothing to do with the EFF." I don't know whether Action SA. Would I know that Herman Mashaba, the party leader, uh, had a relationship with the EFF when he was running Johannesburg? Do those things still matter? What is wise to telegraph ahead of a coalition negotiation? In other words, how much, how many positions can you take publicly without sort of ruling yourself out of any talks altogether? Yeah, uh, Peter. So l- l- let me just answer your question by saying, you know, it's quite amazing uh, when you see politics from both sides i've now i left the democratic alliance i was out of politics for two years and i've been mm. back in politics with action sa for about four months now and uh, you, you get different perspectives from different uh, angles um and you know herman mashaba reminded me that when he became mayor uh, in a coalition a, a cooperation agreement with the eff he had not negotiated that it was negotiated by the leadership of the DA, and I was part of those negotiations, that we had a cooperation agreement with the EFF yeah. that he had to work with. He, he didn't put it together. Uh, in Nelson Mandela Bay, it wasn't yeah. necessary for me to, to um, have to work with the EFF, so we didn't have a cooperation agreement. So I think uh, my experience uh, would be, uh, and the answer to your question, Peter, is that when you select coalition partners, there must be some kind of coherence and there must be some policy alignment. Otherwise, it's going to be very, very difficult. And uh, obviously, the more partners there are, the, the the more positions they will demand in that kind of scenario of transactional politics that I spoke about. And if you have too many party, parties yeah. in your coalition, you end up having a mayoral executive that is dominated by people who aren't part of the main party. Now, I, I, I courted a bit of controversy uh, when I was the mayor, uh, where I basically um, made a point that we were the we were the major shareholder in the coalition agreement, and that the major shareholder or the senior partner partner, like in a law firm, 
or the senior partners would have, um, you know, more say in, in, in decision making. Because if you don't have yeah. that, you have the tail wagging the dog, and then you might as well not be in coalition and let one of the smaller parties take the mayoral position and make all the decisions. And that would be completely daft. Because in politics, the ultimate goal is to win so that you can implement your policies and uh, that are based on your ideology or philosophy. So it really, um, essentially, you would have to make sure that there was ideological and policy coherence with potential partners. And some people seem to think that you, it, it'd be a good idea to you know, negotiate coalition agreements before elections. And I think in a scenario in South, where we have so many political parties in South Africa that that would be completely ill-considered. Uh, uh, I believe parties must contest. And once the dust has settled and the votes have been counted, then you see where a possible coalition is going to go. And then you go and negotiate with those parties, which brings me to the next most important point. And that's where I really, really battled with the UDM, for example. Whatever the coalition agreement is, it needs to be fully understood by all participating parties. It needs to be signed literally and figuratively in blood so that if any one of those parties breaks any one of the coalition agreements, that they understand what the consequences are and they have to be very clear consequences that they will be removed from the coalition agreement. So, for example, if the agreement says that you will vote uh, with the coalition partners um, uh, and if necessary, you need to find consensus before you do that, but in a council meeting, you've got to vote together in a block. If one of those parties does not vote with you in the coalition agreement, there must be a termination of coalition agreement. That, that, that must be understood by all the role players. Now, yeah. that did not happen in Nelson Mandela Bay, and it made it completely untenable to continue sitting next to the UDM while they were voting against us. And then, you know, yeah. there was an infraction of every single one of our coalition agreements and there was no consequences. So I think one of the greatest failings in politics in South Africa in general, and certainly in political leadership, is that leaders uh, are allowed to get away literally with murder without any consequences. And the same thing happened in Nelson Mandela Bay with Mungameli Bobani and the UDM. They simply broke every single uh, agreement uh, in the contract without any consequence until I'd had enough. And, uh, you know, it wasn't as if I woke up one morning and took a unilateral decision that I'm going to fire this guy uh, come hell or high water. I mean, I discussed it with my political party. I discussed it with my caucus. I discussed it with my closest confidants. And everyone was in agreement that there must be a consequence to this con constant breaking of um, coalition agreements. And the consequences were that I fired him and ultimately the coalition fell apart. I'm very sad for the people of Nelson yeah. Mandela Bay that that happened. But in life, you do have to make decisions based on what your values and principles and conditions are. Yan-Yan Joubert, an excellent journalist, wrote also an equally fascinating and excellent book before the 2019 election um, called Who Will Rule in 2019? I'm sure you've read it. And he quotes your former colleague, um, before, I think he was the, the chairman of the national executive of the DA, James Self. He quotes him saying, one should tell the public very little Public discourse is often a temptation to slag off opponents, which could uh, poison the environment. And then he also says that, interestingly enough, it's always best to make the first move and cast your bread upon the water in case anybody else is faster. So basically, once the election is done and you've all made your promises to us, the, the, the voters, um, and you and you are uh, the, the result comes in and it's inconclusive, no one's got 50%, 
we then get shut out, right? While you, um, the politicians, if the self-method is to be used, we, the voters, um, find, out, find ourselves shut out where you, the politicians, then start start horse trading. Um, and we don't know what's going on. It's a, we have this sort of radio silence. You've got 14 days to put together governments. Yeah, Peter, I, 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 I believe that it is agony for the voters. And I want to tell you that it's complete agony for the um, politicians and the political parties as well. Because uh, once the transactions start, uh, it's very, very difficult. And you've got to ultimately decide whether the required transactions or requests are, are you know, that you can consider them. If they, if you can't consider them, you've just got to walk away. And sometimes you've got to play some poker uh, with these negotiations. But it's impossible to have the public involved in the negotiations. The public have the ultimate say by casting their votes for whichever political party or individuals that they want. And then if they don't, if there isn't an, uh, a majority, the law makes provision for how coalitions can be put together. In my early years uh, in, um, in the Democratic Party, before it became the DA, we uh, got, uh, had a dead tie um, in a, a ward in East London. It was an ANC held ward in a place called Cambridge. And um, the ANC uh, had, were the incumbents, and we contested really well in that ward, made some inroads into the ANC community, and we had a dead tie. And the Electoral Act makes the following provisions, that if you have a dead tie, you count again and again and again. You count three times, and if there's still a dead tie, you toss a coin. And we tossed the coin in the ANC one. And I remember in those days thinking, oh, this is so unfair. You know, we only had three uh, wards that we had won in Buffalo City. And uh, we were about to get our fourth, which was a huge uh, kind of advance. And then at the toss of a coin, we lost it. So unfortunately, once the voting is done, the electorate no longer have any say. And that's why it's so crucial for the electorate to think very, very seriously when they go to the ballot box about what the consequences will be if they divide their support among so many political parties that there is no outright majority. And I want to venture to say that as 2024 looms, I'm going to appeal to voters across this country to be very, very strategic when they cast their vote. They might even have to vote for a political party that hasn't been their you know, lifetime political alignment in order to make sure that the kind of coalition partners that one would want to have in their uh, province, because this will be a national provincial election, would have to be considered when casting one's vote. So I think the time has come now in South Africa where voters have to vote more with their heads than with their hearts and be very, very strategic, knowing that there might not be an outright majority. And then you start having an influence on what kind of coalition negotiations will bring about a alternative government. So I think that's essentially what we have to do is we have to educate voters. Why can't the political parties be strategic and decide between themselves who contest what constituencies? I think that will happen, uh, Peter. I really do think that that will happen. And it started to happen already in some of the by-elections. You will see, um, mm. for example, in the Western Cape, where the DA won an ANC yeah. ward, um, the Freedom Front Plus did not contest. So I think there is some strategic uh, decision-making going on, especially amongst yeah coalition partners. And I think that that's probably good for South Africa in the long run. And, you know, um, essentially, uh, there's something else that I wanted to mm -hmm. share with you. Action SA only contested six elect six municipalities in the last election. 
and they're in government in all six of them. And in all six of them, the ANC is below 50%. And uh, it just shows you that if you if you contest strategically and you um, are strategic about your decision-making as a political organization, you can achieve great results and you can get into government in your very yeah. first time contesting an election. So everything is about strategy. I mean, politics is about strategy. Life is about strategy. Business is about strategy. Yeah. The action is, just to come to you for a moment, you're fundamentally a breakaway from the from the DA. Would it make working with the DA more difficult after after an election in 2024? Well, first of all, uh, absolutely not, uh, because we are working with the DA already in many of those municipalities that I've just mentioned. So we are working with the DA. We're not uh, eternal enemies. Okay. And uh, also, it's not our stated objective as Action SA to cannibalize the Democratic Alliance, because that wouldn't be in anyone's interest. Uh, to give you an idea of how I ended up back in politics, um, Herman Mashaba and I had a meeting just a, more than two years after I'd been in politics. And he was, uh, you know, asking me to think about coming back and to help him fix South Africa and to save the Eastern Cape. And after a four hour long meeting, I basically said to him that, you know, I'd had enough. And he looked at me and said, had you done enough? Mm -hmm. And I live in a province where you've got 48% unemployment. Most of the municipalities are bankrupt and really badly run. And the Eastern Cape is a mess. Uh, poverty is a big, big challenge. We've got, you know, unparalleled urbanization with catastrophic consequences of dislocation of communities and social fabric. It's just really, really is a big mess. So, um, you know, our objective as Action SA is to get the ANC out of government. And at the very beginning of our interview, I said to you, the old must die before the young can be born. And we believe that we are the young waiting to be born and that the old must die. And that's the ANC. The ANC has to lose for South Africa to start moving back in the right direction. We are traveling in the wrong direction now. And I don't think anyone in South Africa would gain say that assessment. And the only way we're going to turn that around is if the ANC lose. And we have to do everything in our power to make the ANC lose. And my experience has been that Action SA is the only party in South Africa that is going to be able to get critical mass support uh, in all demographic communities. I I've experienced it. I've seen it firsthand. Uh, the first branch we launched in the Eastern Cape was in a place called Norbo, and the second branch was in Bizana. So uh, we're launching branches weekly in uh, rural areas, uh, deep rural areas, and in small uh, platland towns and also in the metro. So my, my experience is that we need a party like Action SA that can get grassroots support from black South Africans, white South Africans, Indian South Africans, and of all demographics uh, in South Africa. You know, I, I actually, for the first time, really feel like I'm operating in a real South African party, if I can put it in that context without being yeah. ma making reference to the SUP. You, you, um, I know Bizana and Ngobo um, well uh, from, my, from my youth, um, having grown up around there and had relatives living in both. What difference, Athol, do you think that uh, the introduction of independent candidates will do to, to our politics? Um, there's obviously a great debate going on now in parliamentary committees um, about um, how one complies with the constitutional court ruling of about two years ago to change the Electoral Act um, to allow independent people like me uh, to stand for election. Um, 
what the, the the reaction of the parties, the established parties, is a bit is a bit sort of squiffy. It's um, it's uncomfortable. Um, they'd rather individuals didn't contest individually. They, it's going to be all it's going to be all a bit messy. But what's your what's your view? Your former colleague in the DA, Musi Mamani, is a big proponent of this, and um, uh, you know he's not he, he, the, potentially depending who the individual candidates are. Some of them could do quite um, well. Yeah, Peter, uh, I've seen the results from the last election uh, where some of the independent candidates have done reasonably well. My experience uh, has been, by and large, that where you've had breakaway individuals from the ANC that they uh, and stand as independents, they win ANC wards because they are more popular uh, than the other candidate from an ANC faction. So, so that, that has largely been my observation. Yes, there are some other individuals. There was a businessman in Queenstown who stood and believed that he was going to do really, really well. Um, and that could potentially have turned that, that city around and, and run it properly like a business. Because running a municipality or a city is just like running a business. There's absolutely no difference. He didn't do very well. Mm-hmm. In fact, he took a couple of votes or seats from the DA. And I think he might have taken one from another party. But it didn't really affect the ANC's majority. So my experience has been that it hasn't had any kind of earth-shattering impact on local government. And I think it's going to be even more difficult uh, at provincial and national level. Uh, I I am a proponent of having a hybrid um, political electoral system at provincial and national level, like you, you have at local government, where you have ward candidates who are basically standing as independent individuals, even though they yeah. represent a party, but people vote for them. I think we should be looking at changing our electoral laws so that we can have a hybrid system of proportional representation and first past the post, because ultimately that comes with real accountability. But I think if we're honest with ourselves and we do an assessment of what's happened in local government since the last elections, where there were a number of independent candidates, there's no coherence. Uh, the independents aren't answerable to anybody. There's no kind of system that makes the electorate powerful enough to hold those individuals to account. So they will spend the next five years in office, whether they work really hard and make a difference or not. So I don't think there's been um, any fundamental sort of ground shift at all with the uh, entrance of independent candidates at the moment. But I think if we um, if we amend the electoral laws to make them more uh, practicable and more um, hold people, hold elected people to account, they'll be better. But, you know, essentially what I've seen is the weakness of the proportional representation system is that political parties put themselves first rather than the electorate. So instead of acting against independent uh, individuals in the party that have gone rogue or that have done something unacceptable, they tend to just pander to those people to keep the party's uh, reputation intact. And what it does at the end of the day, it has exact opposite effect. So yeah. um, lack of leadership and lack of will to act against your colleagues is probably the worst thing about our proportional representation system because the parties protect themselves. But you just imagine, the, you know, out of out of the municipal context, if somebody like, I don't know, uh, Tuli Madoncella or, or, you know, if we happen to win... Uh, the World Cup next year, if Sia Colisi decided they wanted to go into politics and sort of as independent candidates, they'd probably do very well. I'm sure they would. Uh, I'm sure they would. And you'd have to come up with a system where, you know, the, the weakness with uh, independence 
is that you don't get the carryover of proportional votes. Only political parties get the carryover of proportional votes. So a really good independent candidate is only going to win in one constituency yeah. or in one ward or in one province. They can't win across the country. So that's where it makes it very, very difficult for independent candidates. There's no system that gives them kind of universal traction or support. Uh, and that's where it'll make it difficult. So, you know, if I can use the two examples that you made, let's say Tuli bon, uh, Madonsela stood in the Western Cape in a um, constituency called Stellenbosch, and she might win, but she'll only win in Stellenbosch. She won't win enough support across the province to become the premier of the Western Cape, whereas parties that have proportional vote coming their way will have the ability yeah. to win in multiple places and count those votes together to become a premier. But that is so, that is where we are at the moment with the debate on this bill, isn't it? I mean, we, what do we do about proportionality? Because what's been proposed is clearly not what the Constitutional Court wanted. I understand that, Peter, and you must understand that the people sitting in those parliamentary uh, committees are coming from political parties mm -hmm. and they're going to be protecting their terrain. Absolutely. So, you know, that's the... That's the weakness of, of, of yeah. legislation. The court might rule um, practicably or, um, you know, objectively that this is what must happen. But ultimately, the laws are made by the people who are sitting in the parliamentary benches. And those people have got a vested interest. And that's what makes it weak. Yeah. And that's why I think another really important consideration that should be um, in South Africa, in our uh, parliament, under consideration, is that there should be some kind of threshold. Uh, that a party and, or an individual needs to reach before they get elected. You know, um, that made it much easier in Germany, for example, uh, and that you didn't have nine, ten or parties to, to put a coalition together. Mm. You have to get 5% of the um, vote in Germany in order to have representation in parliament. So if you don't get 5%, if you get 4.7%, tough luck. Yeah, I'll never forget... Um, the party that was, uh, you know, our sister party when I was with the Democratic Alliance was the Free Democrats. Um, and I was there at the election when they had their best election ever, and they got 10%. Yes. And uh, the, the leader of that party took up a position uh, in Angela Merkel's government. And then in the next election, they went down to about 4.6%, and they lost all their parliamentary yeah. re representation. Yeah. So. From their best to their worst. No, it's been uh, the Free Democrats in Germany are are, are um, um, it's a it's a hit and miss. They had a famous foreign minister called Hans Dietrich Genscher uh, in office for many years. They did well when the when the when the socialists were were in need of in need of partners. Uh, we've got such a lot to look forward to in South Africa over the next couple of years, even if. You know, a Tuli Madonsela or, or um, um, you know, a sports figure, anybody well known and well regarded were just to get elected in Stellenbosch or, or Bedford or wherever it might be, um, they could still conceivably and theoretically be the next president of the country, uh, depending on who parliament votes for, depending on how the split is, what the split is. I did want to just make one concluding um, statement that. You know, I, I really strongly believe in you, you can't achieve a different outcome by doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, so I, I think that we all need to change uh, in South Africa. And one thing that I said uh, recently that irritated some of my former colleagues uh, and obviously irritated the current government is that all the political parties that are currently uh, represented in councils and in legislatures and in parliament 
they must all collectively take responsibility for the mess that this country is in because it isn't only one political party's fault, it's all of theirs. And we really need to start doing something different if we expect a different outcome politically in South Africa, and we need change. So that's why I'm I'm excited about what 2024 holds, because I think it will bring change for to South African political landscape. I'm sure that's I'm sure that's right, and and you can see the beginnings of it. You can see the cracks, um, uh, as Leonard Cohen would sing, where the light comes in, beginning to get wider and wider as the uh, as the ruling. Um, the ANC begins to really uh, slide uh, out of favour. It's got to be a good thing. So good luck, Ethel. And as I say, we'll be back next week. Yeah, stay safe and stay warm. Bye-bye. Thank you, Peter.